You're listening to the On the NBA Beat Podcast, a show packed with nuanced perspectives on the league's most important stories. Portland has three timeouts, but the Lakers have two. And now, your hosts, Lauren Lee Chen and the twins, Aaron and Joshua Fishman. This is Aaron Fishman. Thanks for finding our Suns-themed interview. Phoenix is a team garnering so much attention right now, but for all the wrong reasons. They started off the season strong, ranking in the top 10 in defensive and offensive efficiency, and Eric Bledsoe was having a career year. More recently, however, they've taken a nosedive. There's been inner team turmoil, suspensions, Eric Bledsoe went down for the season with a knee injury, and things aren't looking good. They lost to the Philadelphia 76ers, they gave up 142 points to the Sacramento Kings, and Sunday's 20-point loss to the Lakers featured a 22-point first half for the offensively challenged Suns. As of press time, they're on a one-game winning streak after beating the Charlotte Hornets Wednesday night but there are still clearly lots of problems in the Valley of the Sun. So to discuss all of that craziness in Phoenix, we've brought on Andrew Lynch, who served as NBA coordinator at FoxSports.com for more than a year, and has spent some time writing for Hardwood Proxism and the ESPN True Hoop site that was devoted to the Phoenix Suns. Andrew first became a diehard Phoenix Suns fan in 1993 when he saw them up close and personal in the NBA Finals against the Chicago Bulls. When he was at the University of Arizona, he was dunked on by Andre Iguodala in a pickup game. He's fairly certain Andre Iguodala does not remember, but why would he lie about that? I tend to trust Andrew on that one. Without further ado, let's get started with the conversation. Welcome on, Andrew. Thanks again for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's good to have you. I wish it was a little bit better of an occasion, but... Were there any warning signs before everything just went south in a hurry? It just seems like it was just a tailspin out of nowhere almost. Yeah, it's weird. You know, this, the whole sort of Damocles metaphor is kind of overplayed at this point. But with everything that was going on with the Suns over the offseason and the trade of Marcus Morris and Mark Keefe and some of the tensions that were going on, we'll say, I think it was almost more that Suns fans were waiting for the other, or the other shoe to drop. It was nice that they got off to the great start. But it almost seemed like eventually something was going to go wrong. Um, that's kind of what you always feel as a Suns fan. And, yeah. uh, and it did. Um, I think the first, if there was any real specific catalyst or indication, it might have been the the initial string of uh, did not play coaches decisions that Markeith Morris started to rack up kind of in December, if I recall correctly. Um, some of that, I think, could be explained by the fact that he was off to such a poor start. To some extent, you're just not going to play him because he wasn't playing well. But it, you know, it raises the question: How much of that is because maybe he wasn't engaged? How much of that is just because the team is so different? There's just there's been no spacing on the floor this year with all the roster changes. This team desperately misses Channing Fry. Obviously, that's you know a couple of years ago now, but they never really replaced um, the spacing that he brought. And so defenses have been able to essentially cover PJ Tucker and Brandon Knight and Eric Bledsoe off the dribble and really shut down the Suns' three-point shooting, and it's all fallen apart from there. 
So that's a long-winded way of saying that, you know, maybe Mark Keefe was the victim of that lack of spacing. Maybe it's because, like I said before, he, he wasn't engaged. But I think that yeah. was really the first sign that it was like, okay, there's something going on here. Right. Um, even, you know, despite the early wins, maybe things are about to, to go downhill. But to, for this kind of losing streak, I don't know if there was any warning signs of something this extreme. Yeah, I can see that. And, and we'll definitely get into all the Mark Keefe Morris stuff a little bit later on. But defense has been a primary reason for their recent struggles over the last month or so i think a lot of it probably has to do with eric bledsoe being out he's a guy who gets a lot of steals um, is a tenacious defender so his presence is definitely missed but it's not just him over the last 10 games their defensive ratings almost 110 for the entire season they're dead last in opposing field goal percentage also giving up a really high percentage from three-point range. What are the broad reasons for such defensive problems? Mike Longbardi, the assistant in Phoenix who was recently fired um, in that assistant coaching shakeup, he's a great defensive coach. He has a long history of being a good defensive coach on multiple staffs. Those defenses, though, those Thibodeau-style you know, strong side pressure defenses, they require that everyone be on the same page. You don't necessarily need five above-average defenders, but you need guys who are making above-average decisions, who are in the right places, who aren't cheating you know, outside of the system, who aren't going for their own individual stats and steals and things like that. And frankly, Phoenix didn't have that. I think when they brought in Tyson Chandler, the hope was that he would help with the communication on that. He doesn't necessarily have the experience in the system that's going to lend itself to telling guys where they need to be at all times. Like you said, losing Bledsoe recently really hurt them because if you don't have that kind of communication and that kind of on-a-string defense, you need someone like Bledsoe at the point of attack who's really putting pressure on the ball, and he's very good at that. Without Bledsoe, they don't have anyone to force the issue when an offense is trying to get into their primary actions. And teams are just they are getting good looks early in the shot clock, and they're not having to go through their secondary sets and things like that, which are maybe the less efficient looks. Um, so it's just a trickle-down effect, like you said, starting with Bledsoe, but even before that, just the fact that guys aren't communicating well, and when they're communicating, they aren't necessarily in the right spots. I don't yeah. think that's necessarily to blame anyone on the coaching staff or and necessarily any specific players. I think it's a holistic thing. But the, the fact of the matter is it's all related in Phoenix. There's, you know, the reports of chemistry issues in the locker room, and maybe some of those are exaggerated. But the fact of the matter is as long as these guys aren't communicating in any way, shape, or form, the defense is really going to suffer. Everything kind of came to a head, I think, after the loss to the 76ers when Hornacek's top two assistants were fired, and that was also the game that Eric Bledsoe went down. They promoted a couple less experienced guys to the coaching staff. I was curious, do you think that was more for show? Of course it's going to be for impact, but do you think that was also largely because they weren't comfortable or ready to fire Hornacek? And then as a related note, I was curious where he stands right now with one guaranteed year left on his deal and another one that's a team option. You know, it's a really it's a really good question. I personally thought when the two assistants were fired that that was kind of the writing on the wall for him in a second. That was going to be it for him. I thought after that stretch where they played the Cavs, the Spurs and the Thunder with the Kings and the Lakers ahead of that, that that was going to be the point where, you know, you fire a coach, you bring in an interim with a couple of, you know, softer opponents coming up, maybe let him get a couple wins, get the momentum rolling. They obviously haven't done that. So 
all the indications are that the Suns like Hornacek. They think he's a good coach. I guess at this point, and I, all I can do is speculate based on you know some of the things that have been reported, it seems like they are okay with just riding out this season and then parting ways. With that said, with Robert Sarver, I don't know that you necessarily can ever count on something going the way you expect it to. Um, if the team continues to look bad, if the losses continue to pile up and we start looking at you know a, an even longer losing streak, he may decide enough is enough. And I think that might be justified. You know, I, I think to get to the question about whether the assistant coaching changes were for show or for effect, I think that the current system it very clearly isn't working. So they needed to try something new. Um, Earl Watson is, you know, well-respected within the organization. I think he's going to be a good coach. He's shown some nice things as an assistant and as a player development guy. So I think that it was time to make at least some kind of coaching change. I don't think that at this point that they're going to fire Hornacek just because he's. they don't necessarily need to take the, the money loss. You know, they're not going to fire him and hire someone else and pay someone else to be the head coach, frankly. But yeah, it's, it's a really odd situation. He clearly isn't going to be the coach next year. Whether he's the coach come March, I think so, but it's still an open question, and I think it's going to be, unfortunately for him and for the team, every day for the rest of the season. Before being sidelined with a torn meniscus, Eric Bledsoe is definitely making strides, scoring over 20 points per game with a really good shooting percentage, averaging two steals per game. And he had a handful of games where he essentially led the team to victory. At 26, do you think that Bledsoe's finally entered the prime of his career? And is there a concern that the injury could set back the development of his game? Yeah, absolutely. To, to answer the second question first, you're, you're talking about a guy who's had multiple knee issues at this point. They've been to both knees, and ho- you hope that they're not related. Obviously, the Suns training staff is renowned for their ability to keep guys healthy and to work guys back into shape. With that said, you just you never know with knee injuries. Um, so it's definitely concerning. Uh, you Obviously, you have to defer to the trainers. They know when he'll be ready to come back. So I don't necessarily worry about guys coming back too early because the training staffs and the coaching staffs have way more information than I do. To the first question, yeah, I think he he was entering um, the prime of his career, especially when you look at some of the off- the systemic offensive problems in Phoenix. Even with that lack of spacing, he's been a, a much better three-point shooter this year. Over half of his threes of the season have been unassisted, and nearly as many threes, as many of his three point attempts have been off of three or more dribbles as have been catch and shoot attempts. Um, so those aren't easy threes to knock down. And he's been generating good looks because teams are still going or were still going under picks on him. And he's turned into a pretty decent three-point shooter. And that was maybe the one thing that was missing over the past year, 18 months. But he and Brandon Knight are an odd fit. We all know that. If you watch this team, you know it. It's just they can work together. But the the I think the expectation is that it's just going to be kind of a mediocre offense where it's I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I'm going to run this pick and roll. I'm going to kick it out to you. And then you're going to do whatever you're going to do in your two man game. And the actions aren't necessarily related. Um, I think it's interesting that only 10 percent of Bledsoe's made baskets this year have been assisted by Brandon Knight. 
BK's the the person who has assisted Bledsoe the most, but it's it's indicative of how little the ball is moving in this offense, even when Bledsoe was playing well. He's great at the rim. When he goes strong, especially, he hasn't been great on layups this year, but on cuts and things like that, he's been phenomenal. So you're definitely looking forward to getting him back, but you're never going to see this offense at the level as it was with, you know, Dragic and Bledsoe or even Isaiah Thomas and Bledsoe as long as he's next to Knight, I don't think. And that's, you know, not not to belittle Brandon Knight. He's a very good player. I just don't think the fit makes sense here. I'm glad you brought that up, the whole issue of Bledsoe and Knight coexisting in the backcourt moving forward. I wanted to bring up a quote by Goran Dragic I know he's obviously not still on the team, and I mean, you can take what he says with a grain of salt, but he was talking about the Suns' lack of continuity recently causing their struggles. He said it feels like they're always changing something. Can you talk about the balance between continuity and finding something that works? Because as you said, it seems like Bledsoe and Knight really aren't likely to coexist in that backcourt for a long time. I think it's really telling that in the NBA, uh, one mistake piles up and and snowballs into bigger and bigger mistakes if you don't stop and take a look at what you're doing. There were obviously tensions in the locker room last season with the three-point guards and things just weren't working out. Someone needed to go. Goran Dragic obviously wasn't going to be back this year. Phoenix made a very good trade with Miami and got some decent assets back for Dragic. I thought that was a great move. It seemed like it was a response to what they learned about some of the mistakes they had made prior to that with some of the limitations of a two-point guard offense, um, some of the issues with chemistry, that kind of thing. And I think you have to allow for a front office and Ryan McDonough, the general manager, to learn from those mistakes. I don't want to see a team make a mistake and then double down on it. The problem, I think, is that they swung too far in the other direction. They overcorrected by then making the trade of Thomas and that protected pick, the protected Lakers pick. That was probably an unnecessary move. And I think some of that, you know, Knight's got a reputation around the league as a good guy in the locker room, someone who's a good teammate, which makes it kind of odd that there have been reports of a little bit of mild tension between him and Bledsoe um, this year. So I don't know why, honestly, why they made that trade for Brandon Knight. But it's striking to me that, you know, consistency was going to continue to doom this team. They were headed down a wrong path. So you have to course correct, but they they went out of their way to and went too far in that course correction. So what do you do now? You obviously have to change something. Maybe that change occurs naturally with this team just not being very good. And they'll get a top pick and they'll go from there. They'll they'll hire a new coach this offseason. Mm-hmm. At some point, though, you have to have a plan, and that's what lends itself to to continuity, right, is having a plan and sticking with it. I think Ryan McDonough had a plan. They wanted to install this two-point guard offense. They wanted to, you know, to push the pace, and they wanted to switch on defense kind of like the Warriors have done and like the Milwaukee Bucks have done. Um, They didn't execute that plan well. They didn't get the right personnel. And it seems like they've decided to change the plan. That's fine. I worry that they haven't completely fleshed out what the next plan is and have made rash decisions along the way. Tyson Chandler has been very disappointing. He just got a four-year, $52 million contract from the Suns. He's 33 years old. That means he'll be 37 when the contract is up. 
His rebounds per minute rate has dwindled. They signed him to be a rim protector. He's only playing 22 minutes per game, and he's playing a pretty small role on the court. Is Tyson Chandler the leader the team expected him to be, and do they need him to be that? I think the ship has kind of sailed on Chandler. I think you, it's fair to expect the Suns to explore trades for him going into February and into the deadline. The bottom line is the team brought Chandler on board, I think, with the expectation that they would be able to potentially get LaMarcus Aldridge and to lure Aldridge to Phoenix. That pairing potentially works because Aldridge can pull defenders away from the rim and from the paint and allow Tyson Chandler to roll down the paint and you know be there for lobs and that kind of thing. There's just no spacing uh, in Phoenix without Aldridge and with Markeith Morris playing as poorly as he's been playing and not able to space the floor. Because frankly, what you're seeing is if Eric Bledsoe was starting a possession he'd run you know maybe a pick and roll with john lure or whoever was out there as power forward and he'd pull his defender down the lane kick the ball out to brandon knight now if knight runs pick and roll with chandler bledsoe's defender or lure's defender is still kind of delayed and sagging into the paint so when chandler tries to roll to the rim he's not just facing his defender he's facing the residual effect of the the actions that were just run down the paint and there's no three-point shooter to space the floor and i think tyson chandler is smart enough to know that so honestly i think some of it is age and you know some of his injuries piling up but he just doesn't look engaged to me and frankly i can't blame him he's being asked to do more on defense than i think he should he can do at this point um, especially within this defensive system that's not to excuse that i think you know with someone like chandler you're hoping that he provides more leadership than that and i you know i don't know that this is the case but it certainly looks to me like both he and jeff hornacek are just like it's kind of like i'm I'm not even supposed to be here today kind of thing um so i i wonder if how much a change of scenery would help chandler get back uh into the form that we expect from him honestly Transitioning from a player who people view as a leader and mature to a player widely viewed as immature and certainly not a leader, there's been so much Marquise Morris drama this season, both on the court and off, and he's not really producing either. He's shooting by far the lowest percentage of his career at 38. What do you think the prospect of trading Marquise is currently? Maybe particular trades that you think would be good? And should the Suns trade him just to be rid of the headache, even if they can't get much in return? Yeah, I think at this point you have to you have to cut bait with Markeith. Um As for the question of where you trade him, it's a good one. I think teams are looking to see if they can catch Phoenix at a low point and get the Suns to kick in an asset on top of Markeith Morris. I also think that if the Suns are willing to potentially package Morris with someone like P.J. Tucker, not necessarily Archie Goodwin, they might be able to get more assets in return. Um, I think that they're going to have to look at they're going to have to think outside the box here. They're, you know, the, the Rockets earlier in December were reportedly um, interested in Markeith on a trade. So maybe you do something like, you know, Markeith Morris and PJ Tucker for KJ McDaniels um, and Ty Lawson. That's, you know, if you're in Phoenix, you probably talk to Lawson about a buyout um, or you stretch him or you try to do something to get that money off the books. 
And, you know, you take a flyer on someone like McDaniels, who I still have a lot of faith in as a potential, you know, three-point shooter and someone who can turn into a bit of a specialist in this league. Or maybe it's something like something with Boston, with the Celtics. Maybe the Celtics are willing to take a flyer on Tyson Chandler, knowing that, you know, they can stretch him in a year or two. And the Celtics want to see if they can salvage Marquise Morris. And they trade, you know, for David Lee's expiring deal um, and Jared Selinger, because Morris, I think, is a is a straight upgrade on Selinger. And if you get an engaged Marquise Morris who is playing to his capacity, that's a really, really good contract that he's on. Um, so I think one of these, a savvy team, it has to be kicking the tires on the Marquise Morris trade to see if they can bring him on um, with that four years, you know, $8 million a year deal. Uh, maybe it's something as simple as you know reuniting him with Marcus in Detroit and the and the Pistons being willing to you know send Brandon Jennings expiring deal over that leaves the Pistons pretty light um, as Jennings comes back from injury on the point guard front. Um, but Stan Van Gundy loves guys who can space the floor, who are smart decision makers. And frankly, that's one of the frustrating things with Mark Keefe is that he's a very good player. Um, he's very smart. He's a very good passer. He's a very willing passer. He's a very good post player. I think he has a little bit of work still to do as a secondary playmaker in the pick and roll. But he's a very good player on a really good deal. So once he's in a place that he wants to be in, I think he's going to provide a lot of value for a team. Mostly directed at Marquise's struggles again this season. Last week, team owner Robert Sarver made some comments sort of blaming those struggles on millennial culture, saying that that generation has a harder time dealing with setbacks than his. Do you have any comment on that? Is that sort of just like old man yells at cloud type of talk from Sarver? You know, that was the reaction. Uh, I think it's really easy to do that. I think it's funny. You know, young people hate old people. Old people hate young people. I don't think that's ever going to change. What's interesting to me about the Sarver comments, and it's unfortunate because I wish he had framed it differently. I think there's a point to be made, not about millennials or not any generalized, you know, generational point, but some specific players, some people have a problem dealing with setbacks and dealing with adversity. And that's, you know, a coaching staff is there and veterans are there to help them through that. Maybe there are players in this son's locker room for whom that's true. And that's something that needs to be addressed. But to take it to the media and to frame it as a generational struggle just completely strips it of any credibility. So he just he didn't do himself any favors with the way that he framed his commentary uh, it's too bad because I, when someone has a has a decent point to make or at least a conversation to start, you you'd like to see them uh, do it in a way that actually generates that conversation, regardless of whether it's basketball or anything else. Yeah, I agree that in some sense those comments were taken a little bit out of context, just as a nice poll quote. And if you look further in his comments, he talks about there needing to be a change overall in the front office culture and f- for the team also. But more about Sarver from an outsider's perspective there's this view about Robert Sarver as sort of a penny pitcher there was a stretch of years where it seemed like he was selling the first round draft pick for the Suns every single year it seems like they've been sometimes unwilling to pay for free agents and also as we mentioned earlier in this broadcast several times it seems like the front office is prone to making rash decisions in reaction to seemingly not 
that significant changes in how well the team is doing. Can you just speak a little bit about the effect having an owner like that has on team culture for the Suns? I I have a hard time calling a multimillionaire a penny pincher. And I certainly don't think Sarver at this point is afraid to do anything that he thinks is going to help this team win. If anything, he perhaps goes the other direction and he's doing too much uh, because he help, he thinks it'll help the team win. With that said, it's, it's interesting that as the suns go, so goes the perception of Sarver. We know so little about what owners do, except for someone like Sarver, who is willing to put himself out there, that when the team does well, it's like, oh, he's learned his lesson and he's willing to commit to free agents. And when the team is running poorly, it's always, you know, the penny pinching Sarver and he doesn't want to pay for free agents or what have you. I, you know, they made a run at LaMarcus Aldridge. They, they paid Tyson Chandler too much money. I don't think personally that that's the problem anymore they're not they're not selling draft picks left and right and some of that you know maybe is that the league protected the, the suns from themselves with the the three million dollar cap per year in in trades it's tough i don't want to impugn anyone's character or anything like that when i don't know a person but there's it certainly indicates just how important ownership is and everyone being on the same page and again having a plan if your owner is taking the legs out from your general manager or if your owner is giving his two cents to the media uh, that doesn't necessarily help a team build a culture that's conducive to winning so ownership matters and regardless of what you think of robert sarver what gets reported about robert sarver he's you know exhibit a that ownership matters for a team is what i will say in my polite sense (laughs) You mentioned earlier that um, you think probably Hornacek and the team will part ways after the season when his contract expires. And you talked about the need to probably move on from Brandon Knight if possible. We were also talking about the balance between continuity and constant changes. But do you think a shakeup is necessary outside of those changes? I'm saying either personnel or in the front office or is it just they just need to continue building this young core? We're going to be talking about some of the exciting young guys a little bit more later, but which do you think uh, is, is more of the route that the Sun should go at this point? It's somewhere in the middle. You don't do a shakeup for the sake of a shakeup at this point. If they were going to, they would have, going back to the idea that they would have fired you know their head coach already. There are contracts on the books that if you can move them to other teams – the Chandler in particular, of course, that's going to open up your path toward rebuilding. And frankly, the Suns are once again embarking on a rebuild. There's no way around that. Again, the continuity is so important that, it, you know, I think you you see what you can salvage from this year with those young guys with, you know, like we're going to talk about with TJ Warren and, and with Devin Booker. You get them playing time. You let them get comfortable with Bledsoe when he comes back uh, and you just kind of ride this out. Um, if the I'm not against a shakeup, I don't think it's the end of the world. But at this point, I really don't see a point to doing it. Honestly, is there any silver lining to the season, though? Even with all the struggles, is there anything good to come out of it of being so bad? Maybe, as you mentioned, Devin Booker and T.J. Warren really getting more opportunities to play, which they might not have if the Suns were playing well and they might have a little bit more pressure on them to perform has their development been affected in any way 
because of this. Yeah, absolutely. I was ecstatic when I saw you know Booker was getting the start against the Jazz uh, last month. That was great. I think he, I believe, was benched tonight against the Hornets as we're uh, taping this, and they started Ronnie Price. Uh, that's the eleventh starting lineup, if I recall correctly, um, that the Suns have run out there this year. Which you know, hooray for continuity. Uh, yeah, Devin Booker, I think, is going to be phenomenal. He's a great three-point shooter. He's so young. He has so much you know that he can still add to his game he's he's impressed me on the defensive end uh he's a little aggressive for my taste you know he, he likes to try and get out there and chase after steals every once in a while um that's okay i think you can you know dial that back a little bit with the right coaching staff and the right system i'm not against young guys being aggressive uh tj warren's a really interesting guy to me because you know so much of being a wing in the nba anymore is being able to shoot a three-pointer and he's not a great shooter but he's he's such a great decision maker and i think if you're not an absolute superstar the best skill you can have in today's nba is making good decisions and i know that sounds really simple um, but the game has gotten really smart defenses are really complicated the good offenses are running you know action after action after set after set and making the most of the shot clock if you don't know how to make good decisions and you don't know how to make good decisions quickly in the flow of the game, you can't be a good NBA player these days. And TJ Warren has that decision-making capability. He's becoming an even better cutter. I think that's you know his primary offensive skill right now, and he knows where to be on defense. And frankly, those are skills that you have to be out on the floor getting repetitions to continue to develop. So, yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, there's a silver lining that these young guys who are ostensibly going to be the core of the Suns moving forward are getting a chance to get out there, get some real playing time. And, you know, frankly, maybe this the other silver lining is that this is the top pick potentially that the Suns were looking for before the 2013-14 season when everyone was expecting them to be really bad. Maybe this is that coming full circle. And yeah, they overachieved that year. And in so many ways, it, you know, quote unquote, doomed them moving forward and it doomed Hornacek and it's led to where they are now. So maybe, you know, time is a flat circle. I know we don't do true (laughs) detective anymore, uh, but this is, you know, the silver linings are the developments of the young guys, that high pick potentially. But guys, I, you know, that Bledsoe knee injury, it's really worrisome. Um, I know it, it doesn't seem to be related to any of his other knee injuries, but those kind of injuries really pile up. So, they get, you know, they gave him five years. And he when he's healthy, Eric Bledsoe is absolutely worth, you know, the five-year near max deal that he got but he's definitely one of my favorite players and yeah you know that's just the because thing. he was a clipper he's just such an exciting player he just plays with so much energy and enthusiasm and he's a great guy seemingly off the court from his interviews as well anyone who has gone out of their way to watch Derek Bledsoe I think appreciates his game and you know is very much entertained by him um so it's sad you know you, you don't you don't root for injury to anyone and these guys in particular it's just devastating when these explosive guys um who you know have the capacity to become superstars get you know kind of shot down a little too soon and that's not to you know not to bury eric bledsoe or anything these days i'm i have every hope and every you know i'm optimistic that he'll come back at 100 percent. i have every faith in the in the sun's training staff but knee injuries suck and so i always you know i worry about that Other than Booker and Warren, another guy who seemingly should have had an 
opportunity to grow his game a little bit this season, but has seemed to take a step back is Alex Len. This season he's blocking fewer shots, his field goal percentage is down, and he's playing less minutes. What seems to be the issues there for him, would you say? Um, that he's not Nerland's Knoll. Um, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I was, uh, I'm not an Alex Len guy. Um, I think he can be a, a fine starting center someday. He's worked on his verticality. He's he's becoming a better technical rim protector. I feel like he's out of position more often this year than he has been in years past, and some of that is the the Suns' larger defensive struggles and the fact that everyone is out of position. I just don't know that he is the type of center and has the skill set that helps you win games in today's NBA, frankly. Yeah, I I think Len is at a stage in his career where he needs he needs to know what his role is. The role needs to be well defined and he needs the other players on the floor to help him with that role by doing what they're supposed to be doing and that's not what's going on in phoenix so he's just been he's been stagnant this year uh he's a i think he can be a very good player i just wanted frankly wish that phoenix had taken Noel instead um yeah that was a fun draft day <laughs> so the suns had 79 technicals last season they have 32 again Last season, Coach Hornacek claimed to institute a policy where he benched players for the remainder of games after they received technicals. How did that work last season, and is it still in effect? No, it didn't. Uh, it's you know, it's well intended, and I, I understand what he's trying to do there. But these are grown men, and you can't do that kind of thing. Um, technicals are going to happen. The the rate at which they're happening in Phoenix is, of course, unacceptable. I don't know. Obviously, a, a coaching staff should should do everything they can to rein that in. This coaching staff has has lost the locker room. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that. I don't think it's breaking news to say that. And these players seem to be the types who you know like talking to officials, and obviously not in the most respectful way. So I think it's it's more about the players than anything, honestly. And technicals, getting a lot of technicals isn't necessarily a bad thing. It, you know, to me, it means you're talking to the officials a lot. It's almost like, you know, being a volume shooter. And talking to the officials is a good thing. It, it can help you point out different ways that the game is, you know, being called or that you think it should be called. Um, having conversations with the officials is a good thing. And sometimes those conversations are going to go poorly and you're going to get a technical. The problem with the Suns is I don't think there's any productive conversation going on. It just seems like it's all yelling and all complaining. And that that's not doing you any favors. Well, at least the Suns are communicating with someone. Hooray! <laughs> but on that note, thank you so much for communicating with us tonight. It was a great interview, and we hope to have you on again soon. Yeah, my pleasure, guys. 